Good morning. My name is Jessica Karate, and I am the chair of the Women's Celebration Month. And on behalf of the committee, I'd like to invite you, uh, welcome you, and thank you for coming to today's If She Were President lecture. While the United States has yet to see a woman lead the nation, it hasn't been for a lack of trying. And with Hillary Clinton uh, still in the running for the next presidency, we felt this was a great opportunity to look at past presidential campaigns run by women. On a side note, as I've already said, if you haven't yet registered to vote, we encourage you to do so at our table over here. Uh, it's just a simple piece of paper you have to fill out. I'd like to thank Dr. Darren Schreck, Professor of Political Science, for being our presenter today. He will speak about the women who have run for president in the past, and he has a collection of memorabilia from some of those campaigns that he's going to share with us today. It's also my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Sylvia Jenkins. She's Moraine Valley's first female president. Dr. Jenkins has been president of Moraine Valley since 2012, although she's been an employee at this college in various capacities, including librarian, library department chair, assistant dean, dean, and vice president since 1986. She has the unique perspective of working daily with four vice presidents, three of whom also are women. I'd like to invite her to the podium now to provide a few remarks. Dr. Jenkins. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica, and good morning, everybody. So some of you probably weren't even born yet in 1986, right? <laughs> well, first of all, let me start out by saying thank you to Professor Shrek. Darren and I uh, have been working together for a number of years in different capacities. But Darren, thank you very much for always putting it in front of students what their responsibilities are as citizens of the United States, especially when it comes time for election, the importance of all of us participating. And I also want to thank the women's history team. Uh, this is very important to not only me, but to everybody at the college, that we acknowledge everyone who comes to Moraine Valley and to take the time to especially recognize what work the women do here at the college is important. So thank you, Jessica, Charmaine, Mara, Lynn, everybody. Thank you all very much for the work that you do. So you're sitting in the library, and this is where I started my career here at Moraine Valley. So I just want to say to you that how fortunate I have been to start my career here with the wonderful group of people who helped me to learn what it meant to be focused on the purpose and the mission of a community college. And starting here in 1986 when my children were young, you know, this was a great place to be, not only because it gave me an opportunity to work, but I worked with so many other women here who had young children. So when I would come and say what my children were doing, acting up, I had other women here who saying, well, you know what, my kids are doing the same thing. So you know what, I didn't feel so bad. So now your mothers probably go to work or wherever and talk about you too. They probably say, let me tell you about what my children are doing. But they're working also with other women who have been able to inspire them and to help them along the way. So some of those women are here in the audience this morning, Jane, and some of the other people that I've worked with over the years. Thank you all very much for supporting me and giving me the opportunity to continue this. Moraine Valley Community College is one of the best higher ed institutions in the world. 
We are recognized by a number of people throughout the world. But what we do is because of all of you. What I do every day is because of you. You know, uh, when I was a young person in college, I had a lot of people who helped me along the way. And I see my role as being here to work along with professors such as Dr. Shrek and Dr. Swanson and other librarians and other people who are here to help you to achieve your goals. So I just want to say to you, take advantage of every opportunity that Moraine Valley gives you. We talk to high school students. Some of them are saying, well, we don't really know if we want to go to Moraine Valley. You go back and tell them that this is the best place for them to come. You know, this is a good place for them to start because of the educational experiences, the social experiences, all the things that you'll have the advantage to take care of, uh, to take advantage of. So again, I want to say welcome. Thank you again, Darren, for inviting me. I look forward to the presentation. And a woman, yay women, yay, <laughs> yay, yay, <laughs> yay, yay. Yay. You know, when I, when I first got the job, I said, you know what, I can do this. I can do this. And sometimes you walk in the room and you're the only woman there, but you don't think of it that way. You think about what you're there for and who you're there to represent, and you can keep moving forward. And so men, you can say yay, right? Yay, yay. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jenkins. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Jenkins. Uh, for that introduction, and I also like to thank the uh, Women's Celebration Committee for inviting me uh, to be a part of uh, Wil Women's History Month. And uh, a little bit about myself, my name is Dr. Darren Schreck. I've been teaching here since 1999, and Dr. Jenkins was on my hiring committee uh, way back when, when the library was a little bit smaller and there were a few buildings, uh, fewer buildings on campus. And little did I know that I would be hired by the first uh, female president of the college. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity to work here and to share what I know about politics and uh, government and history with the students of Moraine Valley. Um, I've always been interested in politics. My students already know the spiel I'm about to give, but uh, when I was four years old, I knew uh, all of the presidents in order. Now you can imagine how many friends I actually had at that time. Uh, but my interest in politics and government and my interest in history really started with a book. It started with the Book of the Presidents that was given to me by a cousin of mine who had an Uncle Mario. Now, I grew up in New Jersey. Everybody has an Uncle Mario, just to let you know. Uh, but I gained that interest at a very early age. And from that interest, I got to know who had been running for president, who served as president, cabinet positions, and the campaigns themselves. Uh, over time, or I should say just a few years after getting that book, my father bought me a button uh, about, uh, for the presidency of 1980 when John Anderson, as an independent, ran against Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter uh, for the highest office in the land. And from that time, I've always been interested in collecting political memorabilia. So some of the things that I'm going to show you today are actually uh, on display here that you could look at that I've collected over the years. And they all concern women who have run for president. And the focus today is not just to look at the political, but just to look at the historical of those people who have came before us, who have come before us and run for president. And we start with the 1800s and we go all the way to the present day. 
we look at not only the Republicans and the Democrats, but we look at many of the third party candidates who have run. Some are one issue candidates, some focus on gender as their issue, some focus on race, uh, and others are, uh, let's just say, multi-purpose candidates. So we show a little bit of everything. There's no one side or the other. It's you know, a demonstration of everybody who has run for the highest office in the land. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with those people who have actually been nominated by a major party or by a minor party. In this case, it's going to be, uh, for the most part, minor parties because there hasn't been a major Democrat or Republican who has been nominated who is a woman for president. So we're going to look at those people who have rose above and who have risen above and tackled the tough issues and have actually gotten to the top of the ticket. So we start with Victoria Woodhull, 1872, and something called the Equal Rights Party. Now, the Equal Rights Party is not really a party. It's sort of a movement. And Victoria Woodhull is the leader of this movement. It's such like a ragtag movement that even her running mate, who is Frederick Douglass, doesn't even know that he's the running mate for Victoria Woodhull. It's kind of just slapped together. And she was a suffragist, fought for women's uh, right to vote. But also on the progressive side, uh, along with the progressive side, she was also anti-abortion. And you wouldn't find that issue talked about many times uh, in the 1870s, not like we talk about it today. Uh, she was also a stockbroker. She was uh, an editor of a small newspaper. And she was also uh, deemed to be a prostitute by the male-oriented press. And she was in favor of divorce, which was her big issue at the time outside of uh, women voting uh, for president, or women voting in general. Uh, divorce wasn't widespread as we have it today. And when you married at the time, you were married for life. And she spoke on behalf of getting divorces. She had been married three times. At one point, she was married to a, uh, a high-ranking official who was in the Union Army uh, at, during the Civil War. But one thing that she was called, and even though it says the Equal Rights Party, and here you see the Cosmo Political Party, one thing that she was called at the time was Mrs. Satan. Uh, Thomas Nast, who was a cartoonist and a characterist, uh, deemed her to be like an evil woman because of the stances she took at that time. Now, just to let you know, in 1872, the way we voted for people, the way we voted for president, governor, House of Representatives, is a little bit different than how we voted today. So I just want to demonstrate, it's very rudimentary here, and very low tech. But let's say we had three parties at the time. You had the Democratic Party, you had the Republican Party, and let's say you had this fictional party or this pseudo party called the Equal Rights Party. At that time, and up until about the 1890s, uh, the way we voted for any office was kind of, you know, slapshod. Sometimes we voted by putting dried corn kernels in a jar, and another candidate would be represented by dried peas, and we'd put those in a jar. And whichever jar had the most corn or most peas would declare who the winner would be. We also had a system where, not like today where you show up and you vote and all of the candidates are on one ballot in November, 
there'll be Democrats and Republicans, Libertarians, Greens, Independents. The way it used to work for the general election was is that you had to go around, the parties printed up their own ballots, and they would hand them out on the streets. So the Democrats would have theirs, the Republicans would have theirs, and the Equal Rights Party would have theirs. Now, if you couldn't read, that was no problem. My demonstration has three yellow pieces of paper. But we could actually have a piece of paper that was yellow, one that was brown, and one that was gray. And so the person who couldn't read just came off uh, as an immigrant, doesn't understand English, would be told, just pick up the gray ballot and turn it in. Well, you can imagine how much fraud could actually take place if you're handing out ballots on the street. You had to worry about whether or not the person was going to come in and actually turn in the ballots. Now, let's say I wanted to vote for a candidate on the Republican ballot, one on the Equal Rights ballot, and one on the Democratic ballot. What I would have to do is put the three ballots together, tie them up in a knot, and turn it in. Now, when I show it, it does look cute, doesn't it? When I bring it into the polling place, it almost looks like a magic trick. A bird is going to pop out all of a sudden. When I go to the polling place, it's up for the poll worker to decide if he wanted to actually count the votes. So he could actually take these two, throw them out, and put this one in for me. There was no design or no like keeping track of who actually was voting in what precinct. You didn't have cars at the time, so there were very few IDs to have. So you would just have to trust the person coming in to vote that that actually was the person who he says he was and he lived in that community. Well, we don't have any vote totals, any official vote totals for Victoria Woodhull because after all, she wasn't really declared as an official candidate and many of the states refused to count any ballots that were actually turned in with her name on it. So we don't know very much about her other than her personal life, her political life, uh, is entwined with her social life, let's say, and her personal life, but we don't know anything about her electoral uh, you know, experience. Here is the first political candidate that we have, Belva Ann Lockwood, who was also a suffragist. She was a one-issue candidate fighting for women's rights to vote. Uh, the, the right to vote did not occur until 1919, officially in 1920 with our first presidential election. Uh, she was a member of a, of a party called the National Equal Rights Party. She received 4,000 votes, officially. Unofficially, some states claim that she received 1%, half a percent, you know, three-quarters of a percentage of a vote, but that all depended upon which states actually wanted to count her votes. And you might think, well, that seems pretty archaic that they do that in 1884 and 1888. Even today, if you are a write-in candidate for office, a state can actually decide that they don't want to count your votes. So if you're a candidate for office, let's say not a Republican or Democrat, and you say to yourself as a voter, I want to vote for that third-party candidate. I want to write his name in or write her name in. The state can decide that, well, we don't count uh, write-in votes, so we're not going to do so. So when we say that she received 4,000 votes, we're saying that based on recorded votes. She could have received more. This is one of the first items I think I've ever purchased off of eBay. And this is an interesting figure because she was 31 years old when she ran for president. Linda Janess. 
The constitutional requirement is 35. Her running mate wasn't even 35, Ralph Pulley, who would run later for mayor of, of Chicago. The Socialist Workers Party at the time was an offshoot of the Eugene Debs uh, early 1900s, late 1800s uh, Socialist Party. Uh, if you looked at the socialist movement today, you would probably find four or five different socialist parties in the country. Uh, Linda Jeunesse uh, had to sue to get on some ballots because she did not meet the constitutional requirement. The way she got on the ballot, though, and to give you some idea of how ballots work, if you're a Republican or Democrat, you are, you are automatically on the ballot because of electoral experience. But if you're a third party candidate, you actually have to petition to get your name on the ballot or you have to have a previous election where you were successful enough to get a candidate on the ballot four years later or two years later. So in Linda Janessa's case, she was the representative of the Socialist Workers Party because the Socialist Workers Party was on the ballot across the country in 25 states. Ohio refused to put her on the ballot because she was not of constitutional age. But at that time, she had the record for the most votes. Uh, she was the most successful uh, national candidate. She had 83,380 votes, actually recorded votes uh, at the top of a ticket. Most successful woman at the top of any major or minor party ticket. So history is made with Linda Janess. Uh, she would run for office at, at different levels throughout her life. She is still alive today. Lenora Filani is an interesting figure in New York politics. She is the, at that time in 1988, she ran what was called the New Alliance Party. The New Alliance Party could have been called the Socialist Party, could have been called the Socialist Workers Party, could have been called the Marxist Party, whatever it was. That's what the New Alliance Party was. It was a socialist party built on three issues, health care, homelessness, and education. In all of these, in these last two cases of Linda Janess and Lenora Filani, they don't talk about gender very much during their campaigns. Gender is not at the top of their list. She is the first African-American woman to head a ticket. She is the first African-American woman, or I should say first female, to be on the ballot in all 50 states as a third party candidate or as a major party candidate. Uh, it's very difficult for third parties to get on the ballot. Like I said, Republicans and Democrats automatically are on the ballot. If you're a third party candidate, for the most part, you have to get those signatures to show you the equality of the signatures. If the Democrats and Republicans only need 100 signatures, the third party candidate needs 10,000 signatures sometimes 20,000 signatures. In California, it's about 115,000 signatures. In Florida, it's over 100,000 signatures. In some states, it's very simple. If you live in Colorado or you live in Louisiana, if you want to run for president, all you have to do is pay the state $500 and you're on the ballot. So for some of you, if you want that in your obituary someday, you ran for president, you represented the state of Colorado, all you have to do is have $500 and you're on. When Lenora Filani ran for president in 1988, she surpassed uh, the vote total of uh, Linda Janess and had 217,219 votes. 
It's very difficult for a third party candidate, like I said, to get on the ballot in all 50 states. She would later join what is called the Independence Party of New York, which is not socialist, it's not Marxist. It kind of gets in the way of the two major parties, the Republicans and Democrats in New York. Cynthia McKinney is also an interesting figure. Cynthia McKinney ran as the Green Party nominee in 2008. She was a Democratic Congresswoman. You could switch parties at any time. And her biggest claim to fame was that she would bring up bills of impeachment against George Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, whoever it was. When you're a congressman or a congresswoman, you basically are only accountable to the people who represent your district. And I just mentioned it in my 8 o'clock class. Sometimes candidates or people who represent those districts, they say and do whatever they want because they have a pretty cushy job. The chances of getting reelected as a congressman or a congresswoman is about 90-95%. So you can do things short of murder and get reelected. So you could say things like, Bush is the devil, Cheney is the devil, and get reelected. But the Democratic Party would not really want that type of person to run for office. The Green Party, which is a fledgling third party, says, come on in. How socialist are you? How environmental are you? Oh, and you don't like Bush either? You're our candidate. So she runs for president, is not very successful, even though she's a national, pseudo-national figure, sort of national figure. Uh, runs for president, gets about 160,000 votes. But she led at the top of a ticket. From the Roseanne Show. Okay. Roseanne Barr was the Peace and Freedom Party candidate in 2012. She was on the ballot in three states. Colorado, because all you have to do is pay $500. Florida, because all you have to do is say you're a member of a party and you get on a ballot. And then uh, California, because she had big support, great support from that state. She initially wanted to run as the Green Party candidate, but did not qualify. She did not win the nomination. So she ran as the Peace and Freedom candidate, and I think she received about 60,000 votes, just in three states. And she didn't even campaign for the job. But she did represent the top of a ticket. In fact, her vice presidential nominee was Cindy Sheehan, who was famous for arguing against the war in Iraq, who lost a son in the war in Iraq. So they made a pretty good combination. In fact, they, they did quite well in those three states. And then the person that uh, Roseanne Barr lost to for the nomination was Jill Stein. Jill Stein uh, is currently running for president in 2016, but Dr. Jill Stein also became the nominee of the Green Party in 2012. History was made in 2012. Again, the Green Party is a party of the environment. It's kind of left of center, left of liberal, socialist party. Uh, if Bernie Sanders could be a member of a party outside of the Democratic Party, he might be a member of the, the Green Party. Because the Green Party and Bernie Sanders kind of argue the same things. Jill Stein, when she ran for president, was on the ballot, not in all 50 states. The last person to be on the ballot in all 50 states as a third party candidate was Ross Perot in 1992. So in many states, as I demonstrated in class, if you went to vote in the state of Oklahoma, and Jill Stein was a candidate in the state of Illinois, which she was, in Oklahoma, uh, you only had the choice of two candidates to vote for, Mitt Romney or Barack Obama. 
because their laws are a little bit more stringent uh, as opposed to the state of Illinois. So history was made with Jill Stein in, in 2012 as she has become the, the woman who has received the most votes at the top of a ticket, 468,000 votes. And what I have for you is that nowadays, even third party candidates, they've become internet savvy. They understand what they have to do to get elected or at least to get uh, notoriety or some recognition. And this is a Stein for President announcement that she just created. Now, to give you an idea, it's a well-produced introduction video, announcement video. And I looked at how many people have actually viewed the video, and it's about 10,000 people. So even though you have somebody who is trying to become president, female, male, third party, in some cases, it's very difficult to crack the two-party system. And in case of a third party, where you have a female at the top of a ticket, it might even be even tougher to crack. But I'll show you this announcement. There we go. interesting about this introductory ad is that as a female candidate gender is never mentioned you see many different shapes and sizes of people in the ad itself and also if you kind of took away Green Party and took away Dr. Jill Stein it almost sounds like a Bernie Sanders announcement video uh, what's going to hold Jill Stein back is that she's a third-party candidate not necessarily because of the message, because if the message were said in two different parties, the Republicans or Democratic Party, people would gravitate to it more. 
Now, how did we get to the point of having women at the top of the ticket? Well, it has to start somewhere in terms of those who challenge within the big boy system of the Republicans and Democratic Party. Margaret Chase Smith, first woman to ever be elected to the House and to the Senate. Runs for president in 1964, challenges Barry Goldwater from within the Republican Party. She's from Maine. The party is changing. The party is becoming more conservative. The Republican Party was the liberal party of the two. Nowadays, the Democratic Party is the liberal party of the two, and the Republican Party is the more conservative of the two big parties. Margaret Chase Smith decides that she's going to run, does not win in one single primary, but stays until the Republican convention to prove a point that women can compete in this system. But some of the things that she brings up, and I'll show you a video now of her announcement speech, some of the items that she brings up are actually brought up throughout other political uh, campaigns of why a woman should versus shouldn't run for president. Now some of these videos that I found and embedded are not of the greatest quality. The sound kind of fluctuates from time to time too. But the gist of everything that she's trying to argue is there. And this runs for about three minutes.
I would not have the physical stamina and strength to run. And that I should not take that much out of me even for what might conceivably be a good cause. If even if a losing cause. Fourth, it is contended that I should not run because obviously I do not have the financial resources to wage the campaign that others have. Fifth, it is contended that I should not run because I do not have the professional political organization that others have. Sixth, it is contended that I should not run because to do so would result in necessary absence from Washington while the Senate had roll call votes. And, and thus, I would bring to an end my consecutive roll call record, which, as Elsie Copper has already told you, is now at 1,590. You know... You find that it's interesting that she brings up the points that you hear today where she shouldn't run, she wouldn't have the stamina. She shouldn't run because it'll take her away from her job, which is a senator, she has to vote on particular issues. You hear that same thing being said about Marco Rubio missing votes and it's kind of dismissed. You hear that candidates who are on shoestring budgets run, but according to Margaret Chase Smith, she shouldn't run because she's a woman without any money. But men at that time were running who had absolutely no chance of getting elected. Uh, in the Republican Party, she finished fourth at the convention. She stayed all the way through. Illinois was the state that gave her the highest percentage of votes, which is about 25% in the primaries. Uh, she finished fourth to Barry Goldwater, finished behind uh, Bill Scranton of Pennsylvania and George Romney of Michigan. Shirley Chisholm in 1972 is a two-term congresswoman from New York City and decides to run as a Democratic candidate for president, focusing not only on race but on gender and other issues regarding her district. She throws her hat into the ring. She is unbossed. She is not held back by the major party. She kind of dismisses her own party allowing her to run at basically as an independent Democrat, that she's not going to be held back by the McGoverns and the Muskies and the Byes and the Wallaces and, you know, so, and the Humphreys and so on and so forth. In fact, part of, and I have this up on the board, that she is unbossed and she is unbought. Talks about the millions of supporters that she has in her, you know, across the country, but doesn't run, let's say, I wouldn't say it's an undisciplined campaign, but it's uncoordinated. She focuses most of her time in the state of Florida because she believes, based on the diverse population, that she could get that state to vote her way. And it doesn't work that way. The best state that she ever received votes in was California by sheer numbers. The best place that she ever finished, it in, finished in was in North Carolina. She finished third. But she stayed all the way through the Democratic Convention, uh, finished, I believe, she finished in fourth in delegates. She had 152 delegates. 
George McGovern, however, who became the nominee, had over 1,700. She considered herself a catalyst for change. But you wouldn't find a member of Congress or the Senate running for president on the Democratic side who was female for quite some time to go. There was Shirley Chisholm, and it kind of goes for a long time before you start to see a viable female candidate running for president in either party, in either party. Third parties had no problem nominating people. The major two, they want to keep the status quo going for as long as they can. This is a uh, CBS report on Shirley Chisholm. It is from a documentary that was done on Shirley Chisholm, so it's kind of like a copy of a copy. So the, the, uh, the format is there, just the quality of the film is not really there. But the uh, title of the documentary is Unbossed, and it starts with a, where we're going to start, is with a news report on Shirley Chisholm running for president. CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. A new hat, or rather a bonnet, was tossed into the Democratic presidential race today, that of Mrs. Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman to serve in Congress. How do you feel this morning? Oh, I, I feel wonderful. It's, a, it's one of the most uh, marvelous things that can happen in our country at this moment. Then for the first time in the history of this nation, a person of color and a woman at that is running for the highest office of this land. And it's a wonderful thing to know that in spite of the many obstacles in my path, that there's such a large, large cross-section of America who is behind me and saying, why not? Why not dare to dream like so many of us have dreamt before me? So I'm very excited and uh, I feel fine. The, if, if you caught how Walter Cronkite, who was the, the dean of the news at the time, he says a new hat was thrown in the ring. Rather, it was a bonnet thrown in the ring. So even we're talking, you know, the female stereotype that will put the bonnet instead of the hat. Oh, speaking of uh, stereotypes, uh, housewife. That's how Ellen McCormick defined herself. She ran for president in 1976. She was not a politician. She was a housewife. And she was big in New York City circles on the issue of being pro-life. Runs for president as a Democrat. At, gets on the ballot in, I think it was, 18 states. Qualifies to get on the ballot in 18 states, runs on one issue, becomes the first female to receive federal matching funds, and the first female to run for president to qualify, because of those matching funds, for Secret Service protection. Shirley Chisholm received Secret Service protection because she was fearful of the threats that she was getting, so the government provided her protection. McCormick actually qualified through the federal matching funds system. The way that works is you raise money for president, the government gives you matching dollar amounts. The more you raise, the more matching funds you get. That goes into your coffers. If you want to accept those, that money, 
they will put they will give you secret service protection based on how much money you've raised so this housewife as she called herself from new york city gets on the ballot in 18 states actually gets to debate jimmy carter who was running for president at the time and uh, goes to the convention gets about two dozen delegates at the democratic national convention but here's the kicker has so much money what we would call so much money at the time to run two television ads I'm Ellen McCormick. Now I'm disturbed that the Democratic Party is becoming the party of abortion. I'm here today with Dr. Mildred Jefferson of Massachusetts. Dr. Jefferson, Senator Kennedy of your state has led the fight to force the American taxpayer to pay for abortion. And now he's introduced a national health bill under which we would have to pay for a million abortions every year. Is there any way we can stop this? Yes, there is. We can use every persuasive means possible to help the senator and others like him understand that it is no benefit to use the money intended for helping the poor to get rid of the babies of the poor. If we cannot reach them, we must find candidates of vision and imagination who will know that we must find better means of solving the social problems than getting rid of the people that cause the problems. Thank you, Dr. Jefferson. Vote Ellen McCormick in the Democratic presidential primary. She actually did better than many of the, the big-name Democrats, but some of those big-name Democrats had already dropped out of the race by that point. But even so, today, when candidates drop out of races, we, we like to joke around in our political science classes that why are people still voting for candidates who have already dropped out? And uh, Ellen McCormick, like I said, received about two dozen delegates, was able to go to the Democratic National Convention, uh, in 1980, she ran for president as a third-party candidate called the Right to Life Party, which wasn't as popular, of course, as the Democratic Party, and she received about 30,000 votes nationwide, I believe. And then we get to two candidates who were known in congressional circles, and they weren't official candidates. Uh, Pat Schroeder was from Colorado. She decided to run Gary Hart's presidential campaign in uh, 1987. Gary Hart gets involved in a sexual scandal and has to drop out. So Pat Schroeder decides that she's going to run for office. She's going to run for president. Now the elections, the first elections take place in 1988, and soon after she announced, she said that she couldn't raise enough money to compete for uh, president and had to drop out. She would be a footnote in history if it wasn't for one thing, that when she said that she wasn't running for office, she cried during the announcement and it became bigger news that she cried than the fact that she actually ran for office. Lynn Martin from Illinois. She was a congresswoman from the McHenry County area. She was also Secretary of Labor, ran for, Pre uh, ran for United States Senate against Paul Simon, uh, decides uh, after being Secretary of Labor for George H.W. Bush that she's going to run for president gets to one New Hampshire debate, and you might be asking yourself, what's the big deal about New Hampshire? Because outside of Iowa, New Hampshire is one, Iowa is one, New Hampshire is two. They're the two most important states in getting the nomination for president. Uh, she was invited to a debate in 1995. Uh, I still remember seeing that debate and did quite well, but her biggest problem was, once again, she couldn't find donors to her campaign. 
so she dropped out even before the first vote was taken. Another one, Elizabeth Dole was a Secretary of Labor, uh, actually was President of the Red Cross as well. Uh, runs for President in 1999, but what she did is she announced after all of the big names have already announced. So George W. Bush has announced, Steve Forbes has announced, many of the big names have already decided they were going to run. When the big names already decide they're going to run, and she has a big name herself, her husband is Senator Bob Dole at the time, so she has a name. In fact, in some of the polls that she was, uh, that they conducted with her name in it, she was finishing second behind George W. Bush. Why does she withdraw in 1999? Well, there was a, something called an Iowa straw poll. And the Iowa straw poll is nothing more than a fundraising gimmick uh, in trying to, for the Iowa Republican Party to raise money. She goes to the Iowa straw poll in August, does all right, finishes third, I believe. But that windfall that's supposed to come in from finishing third in this public preference fundraising gimmick never really shows up. So she realizes at some point you have Steve Forbes, who's raised all of this money out of his own pocket. Steve Forbes is of Forbes magazine, the Forbes fortune. George W. Bush has already raised $60 million in that by 1999. The race hasn't even started yet. And she decides that she's going to have to drop out. political calendar and election laws favor those who get an early start and can tap into huge private fortunes or who have a pre-existing network of political supporters. Steve Forbes has unlimited resources. Governor Bush has raised over $60 million and has about $40 million on hand. Both are starting to run TV ads next week. I told Bob that this time the odds are overwhelming. It would be futile to continue and he reluctantly agreed. So her biggest concern was how much money she could raise. And if she didn't have any money, then she couldn't run a presidential campaign. You fast forward to 2004, where uh, former United States Senator Carol Mosley Braun of Illinois decides to run for president. And I remember being uh, in the throes of my doctoral work at UIC, and one of my advisors was uh, Dick Simpson. Dick Simpson uh, was a uh, an alderman in Chicago, and he's known in Democratic circles. So I asked him at that time, I said, what do you think about Carol Mosley Braun running for president in 2004? And he's a big-time Democrat, uh, was an anti-daily Democrat, if there could be one in, in uh, Chicago. And I asked him, what did you think about Senator Braun running for president? And he said, you know, I talked to her on the phone, and I told her she should run for the United States Senate because the odds of her getting the nomination are very slim. She had been invited to some debates. And for some reason that year, in 2004, Washington, D.C. had their primary before Iowa. And Washington, D.C. is majority African-American, and she thinks she has a good chance, uh, not only gender, but of race. Finishes third behind John Kerry who is white, and Al Sharpton, who ran for president that year. After that loss, 
she dropped out before even the big Iowa caucus. For many of these candidates that we see, the biggest problem is money. Another problem is organization. We see it not only with men who run for president, but the bigger hurdle to climb is for women in terms of raising money. That's the biggest hurdle they have to climb. Hillary Clinton decides that she's going to run in 2008. And she's running now in 2016, as we know. I'm going to show you two videos, both announcement videos. Hillary Clinton announcing that she's running for president in 2000 and Hillary Clinton announcing in 2016. If you watch how elections are held, you realize there's sometimes no logic to them. And sometimes it just depends upon who's actually running, who's actually ahead of the party. For instance, this documentary that I would watch about uh, Ralph Nader, for instance. Uh, there's a commentator on it who says, the biggest problem with the Democratic Party is that they run their nomination process in sort of this like slap together way. They tell the public, this is who the nominee is going to be, whether you like it or not. You can go through the whole process of voting for her or voting against him or whoever it is, but we've already picked our candidate, whether you like it or not. Well, in 2008, the Democratic Party, the party heads, pick their candidate. And the public voted for Barack Obama instead. So even the way the party would nominate its candidate, they'll let you vote, they'll let you pick whoever you want, but if that's not what the party wants, there are ways that the party can kind of circumvent what the public wants. In this case, it worked against Hillary Clinton as the public voted for Barack Obama. This year, however, it's been a little bit different. This year you have the phenomenon versus Bernie Sanders where there is a huge youth appeal for Bernie Sanders, but there's establishment appeal, big money appeal for Hillary Clinton. If the money that was going into the Clinton campaign could have gone to Lynn Martin, could have gone to Carol Mosley Braun, couldn't, could have gone to Shirley Chisholm, could have gone to Ellen McCormick, if that money was there at that time, they would have been at the top of their ticket, or at least had a better chance of being at the top of their ticket. So here are two different scenarios. Here is one where Hillary Clinton just talks directly to the camera, and here's another one that looks like a campaign ad. I announced today that I'm forming a presidential exploratory committee. I'm not just starting a campaign, though. I'm beginning a conversation with you, with America, because we all need to be part of the discussion if we're all going to be part of the solution. And all of us have to be part of the solution. Let's talk about how to bring the right end to the war in Iraq and to restore respect for America around the world. How to make us energy independent and free of foreign oil how to end the deficits that threaten Social Security and Medicare. And let's definitely talk about how every American can have quality, affordable health care. You know, after six years of George Bush, it is time to renew the promise of America, our basic bargain, that no matter who you are or where you live, 
If you work hard and play by the rules, you can build a good life for yourself and your family. I grew up in a middle-class family in the middle of America, and we believed in that promise. I still do. I've spent my entire life trying to make good on it, whether it was fighting for women's basic rights or children's basic health care, protecting our social security or protecting our soldiers. It's a kind of basic bargain, and we've got to keep up our end. So let's talk. Let's chat. Let's start a dialogue about your ideas and mine. Because the conversation in Washington has been just a little one-sided lately, don't you think? And we can all see how well that works. And while I can't visit everyone's living room, I can try. And with a little help from modern technology, I'll be holding live online video chats this week starting Monday. So let the conversation begin. I have a feeling it's going to be very interesting. And this one sounds more like a campaign advertisement. Oh, let me go back. I'm getting ready for a lot of things. <laughs> a lot of things. It's spring, so we're starting to get the gardens ready, and my tomatoes are legendary here in my own neighborhood. <laughs> My daughter is about to start kindergarten next year, and so we're moving yeah. just so she can belong to a better school. Mi hermana y yo estamos empezando un primer negocio. After five years of raising my children, I am now going back to work. Every day we're trying to get more and more ready and more prepared. The baby boy, come your way. <laughs> right now I'm applying for jobs. It's a look into what the real world will look like after college. I'm getting married this summer to someone I really care about. I'm gonna be in the play and I'm gonna be in a fish costume. From little tiny fishes. I'm getting ready to retire soon. <laughs> Retirement means reinventing yourself in many ways. Well, we've been doing a lot of home renovations. But most importantly, we really just want to teach our dog to quit eating the trash. <laughs> and so we have high hopes for 2015 that that's going to happen. <laughs> I've started a new career recently. This is a fifth generation company, which means a, a, a lot to me. This country was founded on hard work, and it really feels good to be a part of that. I'm getting ready to do something, too. I'm running for president. Americans have fought their way back from tough economic times, but the deck is still stacked in favor of those at the top. Everyday Americans need a champion, and I want to be that champion. So you can do more than just get by. You can get ahead and stay ahead, because when families are strong, America is strong. <laughs> so I'm hitting the road to earn your vote, because it's your time and I hope you'll join me on this journey. So there's a little bit difference there. The other one seems a little bit staged, and all campaign ads are staged, or all announcements are staged, but here you have one that incorporates more people into the second ad to get you the idea that she's willing to go to all lengths to every candidate, or I should say every constituency, uh, to earn their support. Uh, Michelle Bachman in 2012 decides that she's going to run as a Republican. She's a congresswoman from, or at least at that time, she was a congresswoman from Minnesota, uh, engages in something called the Iowa straw poll. 
And the Iowa Straw Poll, as I mentioned before, is this fundraising uh, event. Uh, and she finishes first, first female on the Republican side, since the Republicans are the only ones who engage in the straw poll, uh, first uh, woman to actually win the straw poll of Iowa. The one thing that was a problem for uh, Bachman was trying to get the straw poll to work with the Iowa caucus to have a tie-in between her victory on the straw poll side and making it work on the caucus side. Because when January 2000 12 rolled around, she finished sixth. She won the straw poll, but lost the caucus. But she did advertise, and she did have enough money to advertise for office, for the highest uh, office in the land. As a descendant of generations of Iowans, I was born and raised in Waterloo. As a mom of five, a foster parent, and a former tax lawyer, and now a small business job creator, I know that we can't keep spending money that we don't have. That's why I fought against the wasteful bailout, against the stimulus. I will not vote to increase the debt ceiling. I'm Michelle Bachman, and I approve this message. Which then leads us to, on the Republican side, we know the Democrats have a female running the Republican side. Uh, Carly Fiorina, who ran John McCain's presidential campaign, uh, she decided to run for United States Senate in California, lost, uh, raised $11 million to run for president. The biggest hurdle faced by Carly Fiorina was 15 Republican candidates running for office. And the way they decided who was going to attend a debate was based on how their poll numbers were situated. So if you had the top eight, you were in the top eight when it came to your poll numbers, let's say 30%, the cutoff was like 8%, and Fiorina was ninth, she had to go to what was called the junior table, which would be broadcast at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, our time, which no one's going to watch. Everybody's waiting for the big boy table to start. Fiorina then, her poll numbers went up and got invited to the bigger table, so to speak. And then this was said. Look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? Could you imagine the face of our next that as the next face of our next president? That was said by Donald Trump in Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, and she called him on it. Ladies, look at this face. And look at all of your faces. The face of leadership the face of leadership in our party, the party of women's suffrage, the face of leadership in your communities, in your businesses, in your places of work and worship. Ladies, note to Democrat Party, we are not a special interest group, we are the majority of the nation. This is the face of a 61-year-old woman I am proud of every year and every wrinkle. 
In Iowa, Carly Fiorina received 2% of the vote. In New Hampshire, she received 4% of the vote. And two days later, she announced that she was suspending her campaign for office. Uh, as you can see, and there will be some third-party candidates on the female side who will run you know, for president. There will be some third parties, and perhaps the major party, the Democratic Party, will have a female at the top of the ticket. But hopefully you could see throughout all of this, Republican, Democrat, or third party, females running for office do not fit in a nice package. They could be single-issue candidates. They could focus on gender. They might be multi-issue candidates, or they focus on ideology. And there are still some hurdles to overcome. And the biggest hurdle that I see just in the short term and the time that we have is, is fundraising. The biggest problem that any candidate has is fundraising, and I think it's an even bigger problem for women. So that has to be overcome at some point, too, whether it means taking money out of politics, which I don't think is ever going to happen, or giving new candidates who tackle the establishment, who are not inside the beltway in Washington, who can kind of challenge the system, give them a chance as well. So that wraps up what I had to, to uh, present to you. Are there any questions? Uh, there's one in the back. I'll come with the microphone so that everyone can hear. Uh, you said that, um, for example, Jill Stein is running for president, and the main issue is for third parties that they don't really get as much of the vote because they're not really recognized across the nation. What do you think of the large, and I mean very large, portion of Bernie Sanders following who will not vote for Hillary Clinton and will instead either vote for Jill Stein, for example, and try to bump her above 5% to get you know national funding and whatnot, right. or even go vote for other third parties? Do you think this could affect in any way the ability of not just women but any third parties at all to begin to hold office as we see a breakdown in both the major parties in the United States. If, if I were a Sanders supporter, if I were somebody who, who wanted to find someone who was just the same as me, and I, and I had my doubts about Hillary Clinton, I would not, and remember, B Bernie Sanders is not a member of the Democratic Party. He's just been invited to participate within the primary system. If I were a third party candidate like Jill Stein, I would go right after those voters. Uh, not only does Jill Stein have a chance of becoming president, yes. Does she have a slim chance? Yes. But does she have the opportunity to raise enough, let's say, awareness for her campaign by getting Sanders supporters? I would go right after them. Because like I said, her campaign advertisement or announcement, it, it, you take her out of it and put Bernie Sanders in, it's the same announcement. So I would go right after those supporters. because. Uh, Somebody was mentioning to me uh, right before we started, are younger people, are college-age students participating in the political process? I don't know if they're going to vote, but I think they're more in tune of what's out there. They're willing to look outside of, let's say, male-dominated politics. They're looking to talk about not only the two-party system, but are there thirds or independents? Uh, this generation is much different than the generation I grew up in, much different than the generation before that. There's so much information out there about these candidates. Uh, it's not very difficult to find a Carly Fiorina ad or even a Jill Stein ad. Just go to YouTube, type in the name, and there it is. So it is there for the taking. And for a female who wants to get elected as president, 
They have to take, uh, take advantage of technology, just like any other candidate would. But they also have to know where the money is located, just like any other candidate has to as well. OK. Thank you. Um, just we've seen a couple of female candidates run and, and eventually haven't, you know, lacking in the charts, but except for Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Other than her obvious experience in office and being in the White House for such a long time, what do you think her advantage is? Uh, wh why is she leading the polls and why is she one of the only remaining candidates in the Democratic, Democratic parties that are doing so well? See, everybody will turn to it and say that she was Secretary of State. And my rejoinder to that is, is that the last person who was elected president who served as Secretary of State was James Buchanan, and that was 1856. So I, I kind of dismissed the Secretary of State aspect of it. She has name recognition and the ability to raise money. I think those are the two biggest positives or two biggest things that she has in her favor. Uh, the message that Hillary Clinton has could be the message of any Democrat. And I think that's why on one side there's this appeal of Democratic voters or younger voters to say, I've heard this before. Is there something else out there? But that group makes up 20% of the population. There's about 60 or 70 here who say, I vote for whoever the nominee is, regardless if I agree with that candidate or not. Republican voters are going to go through the same thing. You have a female here who has business experience, and you can criticize the business experience. But are we going to criticize the business experience that she had as Hewlett Packard? any differently than the business experience of Donald J. Trump. I grew up in New Jersey. I remember that business experience. I lost a couple of bucks in the casinos too. I remember it as well there. But are we going to look at one candidate differently than the other? They both have their ups and downs in business, but why does one get, don't worry about that, and the other one gets more scrutiny? Any other questions? Other questions? Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so I, I guess I just want to ask about, um, well, two questions, I guess. Um, one is, like, why do you feel like, um, if you watch, like, the media, even, like, the so-called, like, liberal media, things like, you know, CNN or MSNBC, it seems like they have, like, a bias for Clinton over Sanders, so it's like if like Clinton wins a state, then it's like, oh yeah, you know, the election's in the bag. But if Sanders wins one, it's always an excuse, like, oh, it's a majority white state, or, you know, it's a Sanders state, so it's like, it doesn't really count. Mm -hmm. So why do you think, like, that there's, like, um, and, Clint and uh, Sanders has raised, like, over $100 million uh, without having to go to, you know, wealthy donors. He's raised it, you know, from just average, you know, people every day sitting in small donations. And so my question is, like, why do you feel like there's, like, an immediately, they're trying to like discount like Sanders like he doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I guess my second question is um, about like Trump. Like do you think, um, do you think it'll be like a Sanders Trump, Trump off or something like that? Uh, the second question is no. Uh, <laughs> I don't think Sanders is gonna be the nominee and at this point it kind of fluctuates as to whether Donald Trump would be the nominee. But to answer your first question as to why I don't think it has anything to do with Clinton and, and Sanders. It could be person A and person B. I think the media is interested in the simplification of a narrative. 
Simplify the story. We don't really get through March, get to March and have contested primaries. Illinois is usually a throwaway at this point. But we might have a contested Democratic primary and a contested Republican primary on March 15th. I don't believe the media is interested in having contests. They want to have a script, and the script is supposed to stay to a format, and you just go from A to point A to point B. It's like a movie. You don't want the movie to end on, like, what's that all about? You want the story to be set up, you want some conflict, and you want it to be resolved. And I think that's what the media wants. But I don't think it has anything to do with Hillary Clinton being the nominee. It could be John Kerry, it could be Howard Dean, it could have been Barack Obama. Let's have a, uh, a narrative, let's have some conflict, and let's smooth it over. One more yeah, question? Sure. I've been reading a lot of articles that say if Donald Trump is the nominee for the Republican that the person that can beat him is Bernie Sanders because everybody's mm -hmm. tired of on both sides of the establishment and so Donald Trump is more of a nationalist and Bernie Sanders is more to the left yeah. with his socialists. Do you agree with that, given your expertise and your opinion? Would you agree with that? What, do you th what are your thoughts on that? I think what would, what's helping, what would help Bernie Sanders is something that Bill Richardson said, who was the former governor of New Mexico, who was a Clinton supporter. He said the biggest thing the Democratic Party has to worry about, if Hillary Clinton becomes the nominee, where are young male voters going to go? His concern is that they would vote for Donald Trump in a heartbeat. I believe that as well. If Bernie Sanders were the nominee of the Democratic Party, a lot of those young males would stay with Sanders and not vote for Trump. The, the Democratic Party is shifting to the left, but are they shifting to the left far enough or based on what the voters want to have people actually leave the party and go somewhere else? And I think Bernie Sanders says some things that, that people believe in. Hillary Clinton is saying them because Bernie Sanders is saying them. That's what the public tends to think. And one more. One more. Um, I kind of just want your opinion a little bit on uh, women. I, I'm surprised myself at how many women have run for office over the time. I didn't mm -hmm. really know that. Um, so it's nice to get information. But I want to know your opinion on the way things are going now with Hillary Clinton running and also Carly before she, or Fiorna before she dropped out. How much progress do you think that these women running and actually getting on the big stages and making progress, how much progress do you think going forward will that help uh, the equality aspect of everything? In terms of more women running? Yes, like one day having two, three women and only a couple of men. Like how far off are we? I, I believe like no matter, this is kind of a strange cycle that the Republican Party had 15 people run. Uh, I don't think it's strange in a way that the Democratic Party only had four or five people run because there were about two or three other women who wanted to run for president. And we're told by the party in, so, you know, in certain circles, we already have our nominee. So don't run. So for those candidates, in order for them to run, in a way, you're hoping Hillary Clinton gets elected, but then you may have to wait four or eight years to run for president on your own. So it's sort of like the people who said, I hope Mitt Romney wins against Barack Obama, but if he doesn't, I'm first in line to compete for the nomination in four years. And I think that's where you can have people with the greatest intentions that they want to run, but you don't find many Shirley Chisholm's these days who say, I don't care what the party says, I'm running. 
Nowadays, the candidates on either side say, how many women are running? How many Hispanics? How many blacks? Okay, well, I'll wait. I'll wait my turn then. And that's kind of what happened this time around with the Democratic Party. It's the party of women, and they only had one woman run. So there might be progress in a mindset, but when push comes to shove, does the party really want the more than just one of a certain group to run? Okay, I want to thank Dr. Darren Shrek for his presentation today. Thank you. And I'd like to thank Dr. Jenkins for coming and doing a welcome uh, and for uh, introducing the, the concept to us. Please remember to vote. Uh, it's very important to have your voices heard. And again, if you aren't registered, please stop at our table on your way out and register.